Sometimes the smallest, seemingly inconsequential detail can alter the course of a criminal investigation. Just how important are follow-up interviews in a murder case? And what vital pieces of information are missed when this step is skipped? My name is M. William Phelps. I'm an investigative journalist and true crime author. I've dedicated the past 20 years of my life to helping families of the missing and murdered. Join us. We're crossing the line. All right, let's get into this here. Everett, let me ask you something. Your loved one's murder case is sitting in an icebox collecting years of frost. Would you want to know if follow-up interviews had been done in the case, particularly if the case is like, I don't know, 10, 20, 30 years cold? Yeah, of course. I think that's something that most people assume is always done, but we know, you and I both know, that that's not always the case. Just to clarify, we're talking about the kind of follow-ups that happen months and years later, not, you know, just the day after a crime. Yep. So why hasn't it become a mandatory part of every cold case? You know, the best way I can explain this is by sharing a story. It's about a girl named Raina Rison. She was a 16-year-old sophomore from a town in Indiana called Laporte. Raina had a beautiful smile, long, flowing, curly, dishwater blonde hair. According to news accounts of her life, Raina was a model student and she played multiple instruments with the school band. She had these dreams of becoming a veterinarian, so of course she worked at a local animal hospital and her job was to clean and mind the dogs. On March 26, 1993, Raina was at work, a place called the Pine Lake Animal Hospital in LaPorte County. She had recently broken up with her boyfriend, a dude named Matt Elser but had plans to go out with him that night and talk. Elser wanted her back. Raina was thinking about it. Her shift ended at 6 p.m. and Elser shows up at her parents' house to wait for her. But Raina never shows up. When she failed to return home, Elser calls Raina's work and was told she had left already. So Elser begins looking for her. First thing he does is drive to the animal hospital to see if her car is there. At this point, Raina's parents are thinking, you know, something's up. Totally out of character for her to do this. They get hold of the police but are told the stock answer. After 24 hours, you can file a missing person report. And they do what most families do in this situation. They start looking for her. An hour and a half later, somebody reports what would later be identified as Raina's car parked along a nearby road. And the hood is up. The police recover the car the following day. Raina is still missing. The family is beyond terrified at this point and worried. Something's wrong. Okay, so she did leave work then. But Mm -hmm. that begs the question, where was she going? You know, was she going towards home or away? Was there someone with her or was she alone? Well, a month goes by. It's April 27 and Raina's body is discovered by a man and his teenage daughter. They're fishing, walking along a road towards a pond. They look in the pond and there's a body floating. There were two logs across Raina's back, apparently trying to hold her down. She's eventually identified by her clothing. The forensic pathologist concluded that Raina died of asphyxia due to cervical compression, strangulation, Mm -hmm. and that her death is a homicide. So, okay, this tells me that she wasn't drowned. She was... Must have been killed elsewhere and then was taken to the pond and placed there. 
I'll say right off the bat that strangulation is a very personal, violent crime. In my experience, someone who is strangled, not personal experience, but my writing experience, investigatory experience, when a murderer strangles someone, they want to look in their eyes. They want that person to know who's killing them. That being said, it is a crime of passion as well. Investigators, I'm sure, were likely leaning right away towards someone that Raina knew. And with Raina driving herself to work, her killer had to lure her in some way. Right. So that again goes to perhaps Raina trusting the person who killed her. Right. So my first thought about this is, of course, we'd immediately want to look at the boyfriend or the newly ex-boyfriend, right? The husband, boyfriend, significant other is typically the first place police look at. So Matt Elser, the boyfriend who wants to get back with her, was questioned by police, but wasn't viewed as a suspect. Okay. So was there anyone else they were looking at? Family, coworkers? Law enforcement actually zeroed in on Rayner's brother-in-law, Ray McCarty. A, he knew her, right? B, two years before she goes missing, McCarty was convicted of molesting Raina. Mm. That was how the charges were worded, molesting. She was 11 years old when the so-called molesting began, and it continued for years until she got pregnant at the age of 13 and had to get an abortion. So let's call that what it is, child rape. Yeah, that's not molesting. It's really sad that that's how it was, the charges were worded. Like That's the official document that says molesting. Yeah. But that's not molesting. Look, I I don't want to trash courts and and justice and all of this, but we've got work to do in this country because it's broken. Language matters, right? Language matters. I mean, that's why we're not calling it child pornography anymore. We're calling it child sexual abuse. That's right. That's a great point. Like a child can't consent, you know? A child doesn't know what's going on. 11-year-old? I know. Pregnant? By 13? That's awful. And and he's charged with molesting? Well, please tell me the brother-in-law got caught for this. Yeah, he did. Okay, good. He did. He pleaded guilty to a class D felony of child molestation, which can get a person six months to three years in jail. Get this, though. He's sentenced to three years probation. So this guy rapes his sister-in-law for three years, gets her pregnant, and gets three years probation for it. This is ridiculous. I mean, we're getting better at these sentences these days, but not so much. I mean, three years probation. So he was out. Like, was he technically still on probation when Raina disappeared? Almost. His probation actually ended just two months before Raina's murder. Okay. So where was he then the night that she went missing? Did he ever have an alibi? This is where it gets interesting. So McCarty's initially questioned. He said he did not see Raina that night. Okay. But others claim he did. Uh Uh-huh. So when police put a bit of pressure on him and squeeze him, he admits to having been at the animal hospital that day. But he said it was because he wanted to know where his wife, Raina's older sister, was, which was why he stopped by. The reason he said he lied is because he'd picked up a female hitchhiker that night and didn't want his wife to know. Okay, well, that's not sketchy at all. 
I mean, was there any other reason to accuse the brother-in-law? Like, were there, was there actually any hard evidence against any him? Any other reason? How many reasons do you need? He raped her for two and a half years, impregnated her, and then he's at the hospital that night. She disappears. Okay, but was there any other hard evidence against him? Well, he was considered a person of interest, but there was no evidence linking him to her actual murder. And I would say this. She was found in the water. So, you know, you're not going to find lots of forensic evidence at this point. The water kind of does away with forensic evidence. Around the same time, America's Most Wanted aired a segment on Raina and police received a tip that led to an area just a few miles from where her car had been found. Okay. What was the tip? I'm not sure about the tip, but what they find there. And, you know, if I'm a cop, I would say this this sounds a bit sketchy to me, but they find a letterman jacket hanging on a tree. The jacket belongs to Raina's high school ex, Matt Elser. Ah, the one that was supposed to meet up with her that night. Right. So let's take a quick break and we'll get right back into it. Okay, so when police found Raina's car by the side of the road, did that help them find any other clues? Was there anything inside? Well, the keys were left in the ignition and Raina's purse was found inside along with a ring the police recovered. So Hmm. that makes me feel like she left in a hurry then from the car if the keys are still in there. It it seems like a setup to me, but. But the ring is interesting. Yeah. Whose ring is it? I mean, that's the question, right? The ring actually belonged to a kid named Jason Tibbs who had dated Raina back in junior high. He tried to stay in touch with Raina and just like her other ex, Tibbs wanted to get back together with Raina too. Interesting. Okay. So then if his ring is in her car, that makes me think that they were in touch. Well, I mean, the ring could have been left there when he was in junior high school, but uh, who knows? They talked to him about it. He said the reason for that was because he worked on her car at some point. So he had taken the ring off, put it in her car and forgot about it. As for the night Raina disappeared, Tibbs gave police an alibi. He said he was playing a game of hide and seek called fox hunting, which is new to me. I, I I had not heard of this. I guess it's it's a game where you hide in an area of town in your car and by radio you hunt each other down. Fox hunting. That's yeah. interesting. Okay. Yeah. And who was he doing that with? Well, he gives the names of these dudes he apparently played the game with that night. Those friends confirmed they played the game, but they said they never saw Tibbs on that night. Ah, so between the ring in her car, the fact that he wanted Raina back, and now his alibi is completely falling through, there's some red flags here. Uh, Clearly, he's a very strong person of interest, right? Yeah, I mean, it's circumstantial, just like it is with McCarty, but it's very uh, strong circumstantial evidence, and... As more information comes in, police find several witnesses placing Raina outside the animal hospital where she worked just after her shift with two men. Two men? Two men. And these witnesses claim that one of these men she was seen arguing with. Okay, so was it one of her exes? You know, the one that she was supposed to meet that night, that Ms. Letterman jacket was found near her car? It wasn't Matt Elsler, the recent ex, we'll call A witness had placed Jason Tibbs, her junior high school ex, at the animal hospital near the time Raina left work, Uh which to me now sends up 
lots of feelers for this guy, if you will. I can see Matt being there because they were recently dating again and they were working things out. But Tibbs had not been with Raina for years. It's like, why the hell is he there? Right. I mean, they were literally kids when they dated in junior high. But then I suppose, you know, like small town, everybody knows everybody. So they probably saw each other a lot. Well, he's questioned by police who at the time were still in the information gathering stage and they let him go. Hmm. Okay, so to break it down, we know that two guys, her junior high ex-boyfriend and her brother-in-law who raped her when she was younger, had both visited Raina at the animal hospital on the day that she disappeared. Right. And both seemed to have pretty weak alibis. So then where did the cops go from there? The quick and dirty here is that Police had no evidence to link anyone to Raina's murder. Lots of circumstantial, as we talked about, Everett. They had some witness testimony, but nothing solid. So with no other leads, it seemed the case was going cold. Five years now goes by. A new detective arrives in the unit, and they take another look. And this is very common in cold cases. A new detective will arrive, and one of his jobs will be to go through the cold cases and something will stand out to him or to her and they'll get fired up. And that's what you really need in a case that's going cold. You need a new mind, new eyes, and you need new passion to solve the case. Is it like they just pick a case from a file that appeals to them that looks most interesting or is there like an order of priority? Not in the units that I have been in and the cops detectives that I know, what happens is a detective will be assigned like three cold cases. Another okay. detective will be assigned like three other cold cases. And they kind and, of work on them and like around the same time type of thing? Yeah. Well, they work okay. on contemporary cases and then they kind of work on the cold case when they can, which when is generally time. never. Right. You know, in this case, though, they get a search warrant to search the home of Ray McCarty, Raina's brother-in-law, which I think was a smart move. They find blood inside his car and two pistols and a stun gun in his house. So they arrest McCarty and charge him with Raina's murder. So this is five years later, and there's right. still blood that they find inside his car. So whose blood was it? Detectives were never able to determine where the blood came from. McCarty was a hunter, so it was possible that it was animal blood in the car. Ah. A year later, McCarty is released from prison and charges are dropped after a new prosecutor decides there wasn't enough evidence. Now we have a very official cold case on our hands. It sucks in cases like these, you know, when there's not one but several good suspects. They can't find anything to conclusively link even one of them to the murder. Yeah, that's a great point. This is, I think, a good time for us to just talk about cold cases in general and following up on them. You know, I know you've worked on a ton of these kind of cases. What usually happens on cases like this? Not a lot, unfortunately. This is where we go back to the beginning of the episode when I talked about follow-up investigation and interviews. And I can't stress enough how essential this is to a cold case. The re-examination can help you develop new information. We know that People's attitudes change about other people over a period of time. So when you follow up, you, you may run to someone who's divorced now and wants to talk or 
has a resentment against somebody in the case and wants to talk. So that's why follow-ups are important. The purpose of follow-up investigation, just so we are clear on what it actually is, as opposed to what many think it is, would be the gathering of information that was not available at the time of an initial report made in the case. So what you're actually doing is supplying supplementary information. You're essentially going back, reevaluating all the reports, reanalyzing the evidence in the search of not necessarily new leads or what other detectives could have missed, but areas where you can maybe get people to talk now that time has passed. Interviews are the key action here. I have seen cold cases solved simply by cops not yet born when the case began, going back and re-interviewing witnesses. People have new information. People remember things differently. People have new agendas. Are people also like changing their stories or is it something else? Well, no, I, I wouldn't say that. The hope is that the witnesses' lives have been changed enough for them to feel comfortable now opening up or sharing with detectives something he or she was once maybe scared to share. For example, a, a woman who was married at the time may be divorced now and feel safer about talking and not feel loyalty to her spouse anymore. And she just may want to give it to him. Who knows? Maybe a dude people feared when he was alive died. So they're now willing to give up the goods on the guy. Yeah, I've worked on those kind of stories where someone finally dies and they feel a little safer to finally just talk because there's no they're no longer looking over their shoulders. Yeah, there's right? no threat. Yeah, exactly. Unless it's a mob type of thing. Then uh, then you're screwed for life. Yeah. And you just <laughs> shut up for life. You know, it's a, it's a positive sign for me when I read policing policy manuals for various departments and see that there's a trend right now in holding detectives accountable, not just for misconduct, but their overall skills in working cold cases as well as contemporary cases. That's a good thing because like we talked about a little while back, it's easy to take a cold case and look at it and say, ah, there's nothing new. It's a lot different than just going out and getting coffee and donuts. So if you hold somebody accountable, that's a different story. You have to meet X amount of criteria on cold cases. I love that type of policy. Let me say something some might not like and add a little pun. Let me cross the line here. Just because you're a detective, it doesn't mean you're smart or that you know what you're doing. Most importantly, just because you are a detective, it doesn't mean you should be immune to being evaluated on performance. And performance is very important to cold case work. Most departments without a cold case unit will assign detectives a cold case on top of their contemporary caseload, as we discussed. Mm -hmm. And I mean, it is a lot of work for one detective to investigate three burglaries, some drug stuff maybe because of the burglaries, a contemporary murder, and a cold case. I get that. When we're talking about cold or contemporary cases, there are families for each of those that are just waiting and struggling with the loss for which they don't have any answers to. You know, I know you said that that's true for you and your family, but that puts a huge amount of pressure on these detectives, too. It does. But I can say from experience, it's like a 30 year old cold case. You know, you you give a call after not hearing from the department for four years and they say, oh, yeah, we're working on something right now. I mean, I, really? We're working <laughs> on something right now? But just because a case is cold, it, it doesn't mean you can slack off as a detective and develop the gravitas that anything you are doing is more than what's been done. Your job is to solve cases, 
cold or contemporary. And I'm not pointing the finger at no particular department. I'm just saying this happens. That shit happens. And we have to be more vigilant in policymaking when it comes to law enforcement. Would you say that Raina Rathen's case is a good example of this? I think it is. What investigators did on Raina's case proves how vital follow-up investigations can be with cold cases. What investigators did on Raina's case proves how vital follow-up investigation can be with cold cases. We have to take a quick break. We'll be right back. All right, so Phelps, catch us up to where we were last with the Raina Rison case. So like 15 years went by, and in 2008, a detective by the name of Brett Airy picked up the case file and began reinvestigating Raina's death. From that, a new witness came forward. Ooh. Yeah. Ricky Hammond was 14 at the time of the murder and claims to have seen Raina's junior high ex, Jason Tibbs, and Jason's friend, a kid named Eric Freeman, arrive at his family's property driving his sister's car. And that kid, Eric Freeman, he was dating Ricky's older sister. So that's why they were there to begin with. So did those two guys ever see Ricky? No. He was just hanging out alone up in the loft in the barn when the two guys drove the car inside the barn and closed the doors. So he just quietly watched them from up above. I mean, it's, it's kind of like the scene at the end of a crime movie, you know? He says he saw one of the guys open the trunk of the car and he saw a young female in the trunk not moving, her face drained of color. Oh, no. And then he says it was Raina. He didn't know who she was at the time, but said he recognized her face when he saw her picture in the newspaper the next day. But he never told anyone what he saw. Why is that? Remember, he was only 14 at the time, and he was scared of getting caught smoking weed up in the loft. I guess weed smoking trumps solving oh the murder God. of a teen for this kid. Unfreaking real to me. Jeez. So why did he finally decide to talk this many years later then? Well, in 2008, when Raina's case was being reinvestigated, detectives paid Ricky a visit, and he decided now he wanted to say something. But get this. Ricky was in jail at the time, serving 45 years for an unrelated murder he committed. Get out. So that gives Ricky plenty reasons to talk a bit more now. Right. That makes me think that he's doing that so that he can get a lighter sentence, right? Why not? I, I'm going to trade information on a murder and you're going to help me out on my murder. How sad that he had to wait that long to finally say something. Yeah, I, I have a name for him that I that's probably offensive to people, so I won't I won't say it. He tried and his request was denied, but he was adamant that he didn't come forward with the information for any promise of leniency on his sentence. So he's doing this out of his heart, I guess. Okay. Because of the new info, though, investigators went after that friend, Eric Freeman, who Ricky says he saw with Tibbs and Raina's body in the barn that day. Right. They granted Freeman immunity in exchange for the information he had regarding Raina's murder. And so Freeman told them everything. Wow. He was granted immunity. It's a free pass. Hmm. So this is what he tells investigators. He said Tibbs asked him for a ride to the animal hospital to try to, quote, work things out with Raina. Tibbs and Raina were talking outside of her work 
when they began arguing. Ah, just the two guys that were seen outside of her work. Okay. Right. So now it's all coming together. Mm-hmm. So they both got in the backseat of the car with Freeman driving around as they continued to fight. He pulled over and Tibbs and Raina got out and argued some more. Okay. Freeman said he then saw Tibbs hit Raina and then choke her with his hands. Tibbs told him to open the car's trunk and then proceeded to put Raina's body in there. So, you know, we have a guy who's taken himself completely out of this, if you notice, right? Right. He seems to be like the helpless person in this situation. The witness. And, yeah. Yeah, yeah he didn't do anything. I, yeah. I, didn't do, I had I'm nothing sure. to do with it, but this is yeah. what I saw. Yeah, I'm sure he wasn't just screaming and telling him to stop doing that and to protect the girl that he saw was being And then choked. be quiet about it for, you know, sure. okay. all those years. And he keeps calmly driving the car as they're yeah. fighting behind him. Okay. Yeah. yeah. Sure. Yeah. He's a good guy. I mean, you know, what do you want? He's, he's coming forward 30 years later. So he claims that he watched his friend put the body in the trunk. After choking her to death. So then what does he do next? So let's stop for a minute. So a question comes up that I would ask is, okay, so your friend is choking this girl to death and you don't do nothing about it. So Freeman said he then saw Tibbs hit Raina and then choke her with his hands. Tibbs told him to open the car's trunk and then proceeded to put Raina's body in there. Freeman said he drove them back to his girlfriend's house, which is where a 14-year-old Ricky Hammonds watched them from up in the loft in the barn. So this ah, this so actually- their stories are starting to align now. Yeah, this corroborates, right? Right. What, what the other guy says. So Tibbs apparently said that old line, if I can't have her, nobody can. And that's why he killed her. <sighs> and then they went back to the animal hospital to move Raina's car. So remember when police found Matt Elser's Letterman jacket hanging on a tree. He's Raina's ex. Right. Yeah. It turns out it was originally in the backseat of Raina's car and the guys took it when they moved the car. Oh, okay. So then together, both of these guys mm-hmm. dumped Raina's body in that pond. Got it. Why do you think Freeman at this point is just giving it all up after keeping quiet for so long? If he just kept quiet, like he could have just gotten away with it and not been involved whatsoever. You know, I thought about this. I I mean, guilt probably played a role in this for him. He doesn't appear to be a psychopath and have no remorse or anything like that. So, you know, he might have felt guilty. We might assume that cold cases are sitting waiting on DNA, fingerprints or some sort of forensic evidence to come back with a match. But it's not always the case, you know. I've seen situations where cold cases are solved because somebody simply had too many drinks and there's a dude sitting at a bar 40 years later and he's bragging to his bar fly drinking buddy next to him that he doesn't even know about a murder that he was involved in four decades earlier. So people will talk. If there's more than one person involved in a murder, someone's going to talk. But it also makes me wonder, like, how much was Freeman involved in this situation, right? I mean, it feels like he's That's definitely downplaying his role. Absolutely. You know, he wasn't the helpless victim here. He definitely played a part in many of these situations with moving the car and the body. He's definitely an accessory to murder. He's downplaying it so he can get away scot-free. I mean, maybe that's another reason why he came forward. Maybe he figured there's going to be advancements in this case. With forensic evidence what it is today, maybe his name is going to come up, so he might want to ring that bell first. 
Maybe that's what he was thinking. Who knows? You make a great point, though, about cold case work, Everett. Uh, Sometimes it's about cutting a deal, choosing the lesser of two evils to close a case for a family. I'm not saying Freeman did that at all, but, but I know of cases where a deal is cut with someone who is involved in order to get the thing into court and get a charge of murder. Right. If I'm the family, I'm okay with that strategy. It's better than sitting around and wondering. You know, you get answers that way. For the record, Jason Tibbs was arrested in 2013 for the murder of Rainer Rison. He was ultimately found guilty and sentenced to 40 years with 20 years served. In his attempt to seek a new trial, his lawyers are claiming Tibbs is the wrong guy, that the real killer is someone close to Raina, her brother-in-law. I thought they cleared him of those charges, though. I don't know. I mean, they did clear him of charges, but I don't know that he was ever cleared as a potential suspect. But Tibbs's legal team claimed that fibers found in Raina's hair were, quote, consistent with the carpeting in the trunk of a vehicle owned by Raina's brother-in-law. And that they believed Eric Freeman, the friend who was granted immunity for throwing Tibbs under the bus, was coached by detectives and given specific details about the case. Corruption, basically, is what the lawyer's claiming. Was that enough to grant Tibbs this new trial he wanted? You mean the Hail Mary pass? It was not. In the end, Indiana Supreme Court decided not to even hear Tibbs' appeal. So he remains in prison where he belongs. Good. We would have never gotten to this place had the detectives not picked up that cold case and reinvestigated. This is a great example of why it's necessary. And that's the reason I wanted to cover this case. I mean, a lot of podcasts, crime shows, et cetera, have covered this case. And my point in doing that, because I don't want to just cover cases everybody else is covering. My point is to show how follow-up investigation really works in situ. Yeah, You just have to have patience, unfortunately, sometimes with these things. Decades worth sometimes, right? Yeah, which is a lot more than I've got, right? And and if you're the family, patience is not a thing. That's pain, (laughs) you know? So I'm grateful for this detective who picked up this case and ran with it. How do you feel about this case against Jason Tibbs? Oh, I feel it's a very strong case. Yeah. I mean, because of the corroboration we talked about, right? Right. That, to me, solidifies this case. You know, you have two independent people saying the same thing. You know it's true. I always say that when I go into writing a book or I go into interviewing someone for a podcast or TV, if I talk to three different people and they don't know each other and they tell me the same thing, that is solid truth because there's no way they could have gotten together and lied about the same thing. It's impossible. The number one thing with cold case investigations is information coming in, not information that detectives find. So follow-up investigation, follow-up interview is so important because you're getting new information coming in. You're producing new information. And cold cases are all solved really by that new information coming in, be it, you know, Ancestry.com or GEDmatch. But I think the main thing is to get out there and rattle the cages of those witnesses in these crimes every 10 years and see what they have to say. Shake them up a little bit. Show up at somebody's work one day. You know, a detective shows up at your work 10 years after you last spoke to the police about a crime that you have information about. You know, you're going to start thinking, right? And that's a good cold call. You show up at someone's work, say, you got a couple of minutes about that case? Oh, yeah, let's go outside. You know, why are you showing up at my work? 
you know, you, so you rattle their cage a little bit and you get them to talk. It only takes one little mistake that they make. And if you see something, say something. And most people won't. Uh, I, I, I actually was speaking to a guy yesterday and there was a murder right outside his house on the street. A guy was shot once in the head, five times in the chest. And there were at least three people who saw it. None of those people are going to say anything because if they do, they may be next, you know? So not everybody sees something and says something, unfortunately. So that's it for this week, Everett. We'll be back next week. New case, new crime. Same time, same place? Yes, miss. Sources for today's episode come from two South Bend Tribune articles about this case and the Tibbs versus State petition to the Court of Appeals in Indiana. Crossing the Line is a production of iHeartRadio. It's executive produced by me, M. William Phelps, and iHeart executive producer, Christina Everett. Special thanks to our producer, Catherine Law, and audio engineer, Brandon Dickert. Research is by Marissa Brown. Additional thanks to Will Pearson at iHeartRadio. The series theme, number 444, is written and performed by Thomas Phelps and Tom Mooney. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, 